0: Well, good evening. Just double check I'm coming through. Oh, good. Thank you. All right. When we pray, f- first for the Lord's blessing on us, Lord, we are grateful for you. We're grateful for this day. We thank you that you give us our word, your word, for us to meditate on. We thank you for all the benefits that it does for us, and so we pray, Lord, as we think tonight that you would bless us by it and equip us for the week ahead. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so our verse for consideration tonight will be Genesis chapter 21, verse 10. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to that spot if it helps to refer to it as we go along. Um, And as you go in there, I will just read it out loud. So verse 10 reads, So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. These words are spoken by Sarah at a feast to celebrate the weaning of her son Isaac. Sarah's remark is in response to having seen Ishmael, the son of Hagar, her maidservant, laughing at Isaac during the feast. From the outset, we see a tension between Hagar and Sarah. And many of you will know this is because Hagar's son and Sarah's son have the same dad, Abraham. Now, let me briefly rehash the history here. Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah as a fulfillment of a promise from God. They were very old when this happened, impossibly old to have a child, And they also had to wait a very long time for this promise to come to pass. So much so, many years before, they figured the only way Abraham would have a son would be to have one through Hagar, which is where Ishmael comes into the story. But why the need for a son anyway? Well, this was necessary because when God first called Abraham, God promised to make a name for him, to give him a land, and to make from him a people. And these promises are relevant because in the Bible's narrative, Abraham's calling takes place after a long stretch of chapters that basically describe the ongoing devolution of mankind from the intended purpose of representing and ruling in the name of our Creator within His creation. And this all started because our original representatives, Adam and Eve, rebelled against our Creator but in Genesis 3, chapter, uh, verse 15, while God is pronouncing the curses for this rebellion, he makes the promise that Eve's offspring will crush the deceiving serpent. So promises, promises, promises. And these are important. Now, it is easy to read our text this evening and conclude from it that Sarah was merely seizing the chance to put Hagar in her place or that she was defending her son Isaac from the scorn and mockery of Ishmael. After all, it is understandable that she would desire her own flesh and blood to have full inheritance and not have it stolen, split, or spoiled by Ishmael. But what should we make of that tonight? To help us here, we should note that our exact verse is cited by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4, verse 30. In that letter, he confronts a growing pressure among the churches to accept circumcision and other law-keeping practices to the extent that many were believing they were a necessary part of justification, that is, a right standing with God. Or to state that in the motif of tonight's text, a place in the household of God. After various illustrations, contrasting the law and promise, the apostle proceeds to refer to the account of Sarah and Hagar and their sons as allegories, He considers that Hagar might be compared to the then present-day Jerusalem, still under bondage to the law, bearing children for slavery. Sarah, on the other hand, corresponds with Jerusalem above in heaven, who is free, with the implication being that her children, the children of promise, are free too. So we are left with two key contrasting themes, bondage and freedom. And these concepts are illustrated to us by the two sons they produce. And we are forced to consider which of these sons appropriately receives the inheritance. So we will meditate on these themes using two considerations. The first is the unsuitability of the law to save. And the second is the suitability of Jesus to save. So first, let us consider the unsuitability of the law to save. We should first observe that Ishmael, is the result of human effort. Meanwhile, We may well think that it is near impossible to believe a man of Abraham's age could sire a son, but we should nonetheless concede that it is still physically possible. And so it was with the case of Ishmael, a son of Abraham, born of Hagar, the Egyptian. And it's probably of no little consequence that Hagar is Egyptian. We know Egypt would become the land of bondage for the Hebrews in the coming future. And throughout their tenure in the Promised Land, Egypt is a perpetual thorn to their covenantal purity, ever a temptation during threatening times. Speculatively, I wouldn't be surprised if Abraham and Sarah thought they were acting in faith when they hatched their plan. It would indeed seem to them that they were dependent on God to bring it to fruition, what with Abraham's aged body and the emotional strain on Sarah to give away her husband like that. But Ishmael, in the end was not the fulfillment of the promise of God. Despite how much Abraham cared for his son and intended for him to be his legacy, he was not God's plan to make a name for Abraham. Ishmael was, all things considered, only the work of human effort. And so as we correlate Ishmael with the Old Testament law, we should realize that all the law produces is the best that humans can possibly do, which is no comfort at all. Given that the need for any promise at all was because mankind had collectively fallen into sin, we can hardly ignore that the state of man's heart is now entirely corrupt, and that corruption touches every faculty and part of our nature. It spoils our affections and desires, and even when at our best, it undermines our good intentions and motives. How can we think that with a heart problem like ours, that we can possibly be perfect the way our Heavenly Father is perfect? Furthermore, we should remember the sin-inflaming effect that good instruction like the law produces in our corruption. As the Apostle Paul points out in his writings, he would not have known that coveting was sinful until the law told him so. And then sin, being invigorated by that prohibition, produced all sorts of covetousness within him. And don't we know this to be the truth in our own lives? I mean, I see it frequently in my children, as I'm sure you see it in yours. But it's only so apparent in them because of the simplicity of their youth. One day they'll grow up like you and me and devise all the same sophisticated layers to hide it better. But God will still see it. No, just as Abraham and Sarah, through Hagar, could not produce the fulfillment of God's promise, so the law does not produce the people fit for righteousness. Next, let us note that the son of a slave is a slave. What hope is there for Ishmael? He is the son of Hagar, a slave woman. He is not the rightful heir to the household, especially now that a true heir is on the scene. Likewise, what hope is there for us under the law? What the apostle says, Hagar is Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. Under the law, we feel heavily yoked. It seems to ask more of us than we have the ability to deliver. And it appears this way because we are enslaved to our sin. Our sin saps our strength to do good because it has us too busy running after easy pleasures and fleeting desires. It blinds us into seeing evil as good and good as evil. And with every sin we commit, the law thunders and announces yet another offense against our record. And the one we offend is so perfectly holy that no amount of time served will repay that debt. No, certainly the son of a slave has no claim to an inheritance compared to the true heir, let alone a seat at that table. Which brings us to our third note on why the law is unsuitable to save, and that is because it must be cast out. As our text says, cast out the slave woman with her son. Was Sarah merely speaking in a fit of anger or perhaps exacting revenge on Hagar? Proverbs 30 21 through 23, tells us there are three things that make the earth tremble, but a fourth that it cannot bear. And that fourth is a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. So considering Hagar having given Abraham a son began to hold Sarah in contempt, it could well be that that proverb was playing itself out. But primarily the preceding verse of our text tonight, I think, sheds the most light on the motive. It says that Sarah saw Ishmael laughing at Isaac, now the ESV translation has a footnote saying that that laughing word could possibly be read as laughing and mockery, and this is the line of thought the Apostle Paul seems to take from the text back in Galatians 4. And in verse 29, he says, "But just at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. So just as Ishmael mocked Isaac, we should see that our efforts at keeping the law, are mockery of the work that God produces by His Spirit. And they are a mockery because human effort at law-keeping is a mere shadow of the real thing. And truth be told, when we see the real thing in others, it can cause seething jealousy in our sinful hearts. Can we expect that such behavior has a claim to righteousness? And so as we conclude these thoughts on the unsuitability of the law, let me take a moment to say that we don't reject the moral requirements and implications of the law. We are saying, though, that with regard to salvation that can merit us a right standing with a holy and high God of heaven, the law is powerless to save us. But make no mistake, the law is good. It is declared from a good God, and in him there is no evil. It shows us our duty to God in the things that please him. It would keep us from the impurity and embrace of the world. It exposes our sinfulness. And in the hands of the Holy Spirit, It drives us in heartfelt repentance and plea for forgiveness towards the only one who can save us, Jesus Christ. And so this leads us to the second consideration I mentioned earlier, which is the suitability of Jesus to save. Firstly, and I'm just going to cut right to the point on this one, Jesus is the rightful heir to the Father's kingdom, in part because he, well, he created it. It is his. But Christ is heir more than just by ownership. Through the incarnation, Jesus united himself with fallen man, though he himself without sin. Because he is divine, he of course did not fall afoul of the law's demands. In pure and consistent joy, he kept the commands that are pleasing to the Father. And in so doing, he attains for us all the benefits and blessings that the the law would offer. And if that were not enough, he suffers the consequence that the Lord demands, though not because of his own fault, but rather because of yours and mine. And that consequence was death and suffering in our place under the Father's just wrath. But death was not his end. How could it be? He is the divine Son of God. He is perfectly righteous. The Father would not let his Holy One see decay, but instead he raised him up and seated him at his right hand, Jesus is the rightful heir because he is better than any mere human can be. And he is the full revelation of the Father himself, a true son. And more than this, he is understanding and tender. He took our nature upon himself. He knows firsthand the weakness of our flesh, and he has the remedy to overcome it. He will not break a bent reed. We do not need to fear being cast out. Instead, as we heard this morning... Whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. Free indeed because they are loosened from the penalty and bondage of their sin, and they have become sons of promise. And that leads us to our second and final note of the suitability of Jesus to save, which is because it is based on promise. A promise from the Lord Himself. And when God swears by His name, it is something that will not fail to come to pass. Instead, it is certain it is something one can put their trust in and know with confidence that that trust is well-placed. Unlike Abraham and Sarah laboring against all odds to conceive a plan, God merely wills it that they should conceive a son, because he is Yahweh. He promised, and it came to be. In our text, Isaac is the child of promise and the rightful heir to the house of his father Abraham. But in Genesis, Isaac is merely the initial fulfillment of some of the specific promises God made to Abraham which are themselves critical plays in the redemptive storyline, which fulfill that opening promise that Eve's offspring will crush the serpent's head. And all of these have come to their beautiful completion in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the serpent smasher. And in him, all his people are freed from their bondage to sin and its penalty. United with him by faith, his people can look forward to the inheritance kept in heaven kept until the dawning of that great day when Jesus will return on the clouds in glory to usher in the new creation, restoring all things to how they ought to be. All praise be to our Lord and Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, all praise and honor and might and glory belong to you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. It's a light to the world in darkness. And we rejoice at your promises and your plan of redemption. And we thank you for the hope of salvation. We thank you that Jesus sets us free from the power of sin. Equip us, we pray, to be ambassadors of this sure hope that is in in his name. Be pleased to make yourself known through us this week, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.